Welcome to the Mad in America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Our podcasts are made possible in part by a grant from the Thomas Job Fund. So welcome to the Mad in America Spotlight interview podcast series. I'm Justin Carter, the lead research news editor at Madden America, and I'll be your host today. We have a captivating topic on our hands, the radical politics of madness and mental health. We're going to dig deep, uncovering connections between mental health, power, society, liberation, and disability justice. Our guest today, Misha Fraser-Carroll, is more than qualified to guide us on our journey. She's a writer, editor, and advocate as a columnist at The Independent and an editor for publications like The Guardian, Galdem, and Blueprint, a mental health magazine she founded, Misha's voice has consistently challenged conventional views in psychology and psychiatry. Her insights are pushing us to rethink how we see madness in our world. Her recent book, Mad World, The Politics of Mental Health, takes us further down this path. It's not just about mental health as a personal issue. Misha connects mental health to the broader social fabric, intertwining it with themes like capitalism, racism, disability justice, and queer liberation. In Mad World, she's breaking barriers and creating new ways to understand care, empathy, and mental health itself. It's been hailed by Dazed as a radical antidote to how we usually think about these subjects, a guide for anyone who wants to challenge the status quo in our fields. So today, as we dive into the radical politics of madness, We'll explore how we can look at mental health as more than a personal concern. We'll see how Misha's work is helping transform our thinking in a world often restricted by labels, diagnoses, and societal constraints. Misha, welcome to the Mad in America podcast. Thank you for having me, Justin. I listened to this podcast so much while I was writing, so it feels very full circle to now be a guest. Well, we're so pleased to have you here and so thankful for your book. Uh, As I mentioned Before, I was at the American Psychological Association conference last week, and there wasn't much talk there about challenging the role of psychology in capitalism and neoliberalism. So very refreshing to have your book with me as I traveled. So I think it's helpful to begin by discussing what we mean when we talk about the politics of mental health. Many attempts to connect mental health, mental distress, and madness to political realities connect the material effects of poverty, oppression, and dislocation to the development of psychological disturbance, but they tend to stop there. However, you deliberately push beyond this approach. You write in your book that a truly political approach cannot only look at causes of what we call madness and mental illness, it must also be constructivist, interrogating the very concepts of madness and mental illness themselves. Can you begin by explaining your approach here and how being constructivist illuminates the political complexities of mental health work? Definitely. So I should start by saying that I think it is really crucial, as you mentioned, that we try to situate mental health and how we experience distress within this political context of, you know, how do forces like neoliberal capitalism, racism, uh, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, how do each of these things shape who experiences distress um, and how it is experienced? I think that's really important. But as you mentioned in the book, I try really hard to push beyond just asking, okay, why are some groups disproportionately likely to experience mental distress? But actually, what is this thing that we call madness or mental illness? And how did we come to think of it this way? 
And the reasons why I think that this is necessary when we're taking a radical political approach is because actually when we start to question and look at the history of when certain things became categorized as madness and mental illness, we see that very political forces, um, I explicitly say capitalism, um, play a really large role in defining who is seen as mentally well or ill, who's seen as mad and sane. And unless we look at these political conditions and look at how we came to think of the things we call madness and mental illness as those things, um, I think that we can't truly um, kind of take a political approach and unpack, um, actually, could it look a different way in a different world? And actually, are all of the people um, that we that are usually categorized societally into these groups, is that consensual? Is that actually good for people? Um, and so that's why I think that a political approach demands this focus on kind of social construction. So you're uh, pointing out the fact that the very language that we use, the words that we use uh, in the mental health fields, madness, mental distress, they each contain within them a lot of sort of ideological, philosophical, historical baggage. So I, in the book, I see you both working within the existing language because that's the language we have, but also trying to challenge it and create new ways of talking and thinking. Um, for example, you make a point of talking about body minds as one word. Can you tell us what this means and how this challenges our usual discourse and our ways of thinking about the mind in mental health? As you say, language is so thorny in this area, and I really agonized over the use of certain terminology. You know, much like Mad in America, my book, you know, it's called Mad World. Madness is right there in the title, but to some people that's seen as controversial. Um, at the same time, mental illness comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of um, ideology that's weaved into that concept. And I use this term body minds, which you point out, which is another one that I kind of agonized over. And at first I kind of thought, does it sound too jargony? But then I decided to go with it. And the use of the word body minds, so kind of uniting in one word, body and mind, was really trying to gesture towards the idea that actually we often think of the mind as a completely separate kind of domain um, to like what we might think of as our physical bodies. Um, and that's very rooted in kind of, you know, mind-body dualism, the idea that they're they're not intertwined. Um, and I wanted to push against this um, for a number of reasons. I think one reason is even in kind of the critical mental health space, I think I sometimes see kind of evidence of this dualism popping up, you know, when people say, for example, you know, mental health is constructed, but physical health is real, or diagnosis isn't valid for mental health, but is for physical health. I try to, by saying body minds, kind of muddy the waters a bit there and gesture towards the fact that actually, you know, not only psychiatry, but also the medical industrial complex, also all of our ways of thinking about biomedicine um, and diagnosis, for example, all of these things are grounded in a political context. Um, and I think when we analyze the mind and the body, or for example, psychiatry versus medicine, we need to acknowledge that there's a lot of kind of fluidity between the two and that there's not a hard split between them. That reminds me that in the book, there was a quote that stuck out to me where you said that illness, I might get this slightly uh, wrong, so feel free to correct it here, but that illness is, uh, and I think you're alluding to both like physical, mental, body, minds, illness, uh, is a way of being or an identity 
necessitated under capitalism? Something to that effect? Can you, is that right? Or can you elaborate on what you meant by that? Yeah, so I borrowed this from the Socialist Patients Collective, um, which was kind of a psychiatric survivor and service user collective operating, I think it was in the 1970s in Germany. And they have this kind of long sort of manifesto, which is called Turn Illness into a Weapon, um, which has some really, really interesting analysis of um, mental health under capitalism, but also just health and illness more broadly. So they kind of take this... um, this kind of united approach, I think they'd probably be advocates maybe of of the body-mind idea. They take a united approach when they talk about mental and physical. Um, And they write that illness is a necessary, is kind of the only condition that we can have under capitalism, which I think is really apt and is a theme that comes through quite a lot in the book, looking at, you know, how did, for example, the Industrial Revolution, how did that cause not only mass distress, you know, and we see the explosion of like the asylum system, for example, during this period, but also how did that um, bleed into physical injuries on the production line? You know, people getting sick in the crowded city conditions. And so the concept really is that capitalist work, um, but also the quest for profit and capital accumulation more broadly um, will always harm us. Like it will always be making us sick. And I think how unwell or um, how unwell you become or how much you suffer is a matter of degree. Um, we're kind of all experiencing the same forces to an extent. And uh, this is a, a great lead into where I wanted to head next. I was thinking about uh, how clearly your book lays out how mental health and madness, the language we use to describe these experiences has been inextricably tied to the demands of capitalist production from the very start. Uh, You give an example in the book, particularly to the UK, um, that the laws that arose in the 1800s that began to name and manage the conditions that prevent people from living independently and working in factories were the sort of proto-mental health uh, language and discourse that we use today. Um, So previously, these folks were able to be part of communities and families and contribute purposefully in ways that were no longer seen uh, as employable or as labor, but now they needed to be named and accounted for by the state in some way. Can, can you elaborate for us the ways that mental health and mental illness have been tied to these ideas of productivity um, since the Industrial Revolution under capitalism? Definitely. So like you say, you know, I, I take a specifically UK focus in the book, partly because I start with Bethlehem, Bethlehem Hospital, colloquially named um, Bedlam, Um, which was the world's first asylum that we know of. Um, But I look at the fact that in um, Britain, uh, for the majority of history, people who were categorized as mad um, lived in the community. They were cared for by family or by friends. Um, And I look at the fact that, for example, um, the poor laws were introduced um, in Britain and these laws, historically, they stripped um, funding from families who previously would have had a bit of money to look after um, their mad relatives in the home. I also look at, you know, the dawn of the capitalist economic system, the dawn of the industrial revolution, and how, you know, this was around the same time as the poor laws. And the fact that you shift from this very kind of um, community-based approach to production, so lots of people kind of created um, and produced things in their homes, to this system where suddenly people had to go into factory conditions. 
which were very narrow and very specific and very fast paced in how they operated. And I try to look at this kind of emergence of the factory as quite a key moment um, in starting to categorize particular people as mad and also in starting to institutionalize these people. You know, we see a huge um, explosion in the number of people being admitted to asylums around this time. Um, and I think there are a few reasons for that. You know, firstly, uh, like I said, you've got the funding that's stripped from families, but then you've also got people suddenly having to go into the factory. They can't work at home anymore. So all those family members and friends and people who might have cared for their relatives all of a sudden have to go somewhere else to a, a physical workplace to produce. Um, but simultaneously, as part of the poor laws, you also got even people who were unemployed um, suddenly were sent into workhouses, so another institution um, where they had to physically leave the home. So you create this situation where suddenly you're going from a community-based approach to care to you've got mad relatives in the home um, and where else are they going to go? Like they have to go somewhere. And so they go to asylums. Um, and like I said, around this time, you see many, many more people being admitted to asylums. You also, as a result, see the passing in, in Britain of two asylum acts, um, which mandated the building of what were called lunatic asylums in every single county across Britain. Um, and you often get people looking at this history and being like, isn't it interesting? Like, why was it that there suddenly were so, so many people being admitted? Um, and I think that, that the emergence of capitalism is a really key factor. And I think when you've also got so many people being admitted to asylums, you see systems of taxonomizing. So how do we name these people? What do we put on the records? Like, what is their condition? Um, which is obviously a bit of a precursor to psychiatry. You see these taxonomization um, systems emerging. And so, you know, historically, um, at first, you kind of just had two main categories, which were called mania and melancholia. Um, and then gradually, as time goes on, you see these narrower and narrower categories. And some of these categories are really ridiculous. You know, <laughs> you've got ones um, like politics or novel reading, um, immoral life, things like this. Um, but these were considered to be valid categories of madness, which also, you know, it signals towards who, who in our society is seen as the right kind of person, as the person who's living the kind of life that is productive. Um, so this is, you know, kind of the foundational argument that I make in chapter one of the book, um, that the people who were being sent to asylums and thus categorized as mad were people who fundamentally were seen to be unproductive. They were people who couldn't go onto the production line. They couldn't be exploited, but simultaneously they couldn't be cared for in the home. And I argue as the book goes on, you know, I have one chapter on capitalist work kind of in contemporary life, um, which kind of extends this argument to even how we categorize mental health versus illness today. So, you know, um, it's uh, Bruce Cohen, I think, who writes in his book, Psychiatric Hegemony, um, about the fact that uh, the DSM uh, mentions work 300 times. <laughs> work is one of the, the central metrics by which we judge what is considered to be an illness. And, you know, you see this when you go to get a diagnosis of, for example, depression, big question is going to be, does this interfere with your ability to go to work, to go to school, to go about daily life? Um, 
And you see this also in who gets a diagnosis and who doesn't get a diagnosis. Um, for example, you know, I knew lots of people at university who would go and try to get, for example, a diagnosis of depression and be told, no, you're meeting your deadlines. You can still work. You're doing everything fine. Um, so again, I think, you know, that shows that work, work is the measure. On the flip side, you've also got people who aren't in distress necessarily. You know, I, I'm sure many listeners of this podcast will be aware of things like the hearing voices movement and people who, you know, they say, I hear voices, but it's not a problem to me. That's just how I am. You get these people also being categorized as ill um, and being pathologized because fundamentally the experience of hearing voices is often correlated with or associated with um, a reduced ability to go and be exploited in um, a you know a five five day a week job. Um, and so I really try to kind of prize apart or question, you know, could we create a world actually where what we thought of as um, healthy or ill, sane, um, sane or mad, could we actually create a world where work was not the central metric by which we um, decided how we value different people's bodies and minds? Um, and I argue that that's, that's kind of the future that we should be building towards, one that's more self-directed um, and not so characterized by capitalism. It's important that you point out that it's not just the ability to work, but to work under certain capitalist conditions that require sort of self-management, hyper-individualism. And I'm thinking about the connection here to neoliberalism and the idea that people need to be able to kind of manage their own emotions without accommodations from their environment or without relational uh, strategies with the people around them that help to allow people to move in the world in particular ways. And I'm thinking about the role of the psi professions in neoliberalism. And, and you, put, you, you point this out pretty directly and pretty explicitly in the book that thinking about our ter- ourselves in, in mental health terms um, might actually break down our ability to resist capitalism. You, sa- you said that uh, over recent decades, you point out that strike days have fallen while working days lost to stress-related illness have skyrocketed. And then later, when talking about the mental health fields, you put it plainly, mindfulness is no substitute for a unionized workplace. So I'm wondering how you see mental health discourse um, and psychiatry and psychology as implicated in hollowing out labor politics in the UK and the US. Mm, I think it's definitely played a role and interacted with um, the hollowing out of labor politics. Um, Because like you say, yeah, I think it's the journalist Tim Adams who points out that, you know, you get this peak, this wave of um, like mass strike action, um, for example, in the UK in the 1970s. And then you see the decimation of the, that labour movement under uh, Margaret Thatcher. And you can trace at the exact same time the number of days that workers lose to, you know, quote, stress-related illness um, skyrockets. And I think that really is, you know, it's anecdotal, but simultaneously it does demonstrate that gradual shift from this societal political analysis, you know, diagnosing the problem as a social one to diagnosing the problem as an individual one. We might have previously thought of, you know, this is societal disorder and then it becomes um, individual disorder. And this is what the the cultural theorist Mark Fisher talks about. Um, He calls it the privatization of stress. You know, under neoliberalism, you obviously 
obviously see the privatization of lots of state services and businesses. But he says, actually, even the way that we think um, about stress or political problems, we've started to see it as an individual problem. Um, and I think that simultaneously, you know, I have sympathy and want to understand the fact that, um, you know, workers losing losing working days to stress-related illness, like that, that is very real. And that, you know, like I said, Margaret Thatcher's um, policies and her strategic decimation of the union movement, like led to that situation, um, where actually the only ways that people could kind of remedy their distress, they did become quite individualistic. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I think that we do need to question to bring it back, you know, to capitalist work, for example, the fact that so often, um, when we talk about treatment or mental health treatment, we're really talking about how do we, um, align, realign, um, what are kind of seen as unruly individuals, how do we realign their bodies and minds back in line with the demands of the market? And how do we do this on an individual basis and usually a retrospective basis as well? How do we bring them back in line? Um, And I think that, you know, it's very insidious the way we've seen it come into workplaces, you know, oh, lots of people can now get free therapy with work um, or CBT uh, people might be able to, you know, get their mindfulness app or whatever, you know, subscription through their workplace. Um, and while I don't think, you know, I, I do think that many of these uh, remedies and practices, they can help some people, like they can be pathways to healing. Simultaneously, um, they are so individual. And I think when we start and end our analysis at the individual like that, we never really get to the political Part of the matter, and it means that we also blame people um, for their suffering under the economic system that we have. You know, a, a British service user collective um, called Recovery in the Bin, which I think is just such a great name. Um, they point this out. They say actually, the the model of recovery that has been adopted by services is completely individual. Like, and actually they say we can never, we can never, some of us can never recover under the conditions that we currently live in. And to pretend that we can, it kind of blames the individual um, for problems that that we didn't create. So in the way you describe me, and I can imagine mental health discourse, not even necessarily like mental health treatment, but the, the way that psychological constructs have spread uh, to become a discourse that the entire population used to make sense of themselves uh, serves two functions under capital. One is to name and separate the people who can't uh, function within the system, who won't be productive in some way and to, and to find a way of uh, moving them out of the labor market. And then uh, for everyone else, uh, a sort of recovery function that helps to sort of cultivate people to be the kind of subjects that can continually show up to work the next day, even if it is alienating, even if it is... Um, extracting, um, even if it is causing illness, as you say, um, and sort of, sort of prepares the labor market to, uh, to be able to be exploited under capital. And I think this is a particularly interesting way to think about it in light of the global mental health movement. If we think about sort of imperialism and neocolonialism, looking to spread this discourse globally in a way that prepares subjects from different cultural backgrounds to be the kinds of subjects that can then be used um, 
and, and so I'm wondering if you can say more about the global mental health movement, what you write about in your book, uh, and the ways that ways of thinking about ourselves, ways, ways of experiencing spiritual practice, as you allude to in, in your own family, can be categorized um, and uh, and treated as pathology, but also the the way the impact that this has on populations globally when we're spreading this particular uh, neoliberal Western mental health discourse. Yeah, in the book, I draw on the work of Dr. China Mills to critique, you know, what is called the global mental health movement, um, which is in many ways, you know, a means of exporting psychiatric ways of thinking um, across the world. Um, And I, you know, I I look at like a few different kind of examples um, to draw out uh, the ways that actually cross-culturally, it's like psychiatry operates cross-culturally. So one example I look at in the book is, you know, this um, proposed diagnostic category in the 19th century called drapetomania, um, which I think was proposed by a um, physician called Samuel Cartwright. Um, and the symptoms for this, you know, so-called disorder or illness um, was uh, when enslaved black people run away from the plantation. Um, and I think the treatment was also, um, it was beating or whipping. And so I think, you know, we, we can look back and say, this is ludicrous. Like how could this ever be thought of as kind of a, uh, an objective biological illness, but simultaneously it reveals again, well, what was expected, um, what was expected of black people at the time to make them exploitable, like to be exploitable, um, uh, citizens, or I guess not even um, brought into the category of citizen, um, they had to stay at the plantation and they had to um, they had to labor against their will. And so I think that within that context, you can see again that the way that we categorize certain things as illness is so, so tied um, to how exploitable you are. So I think that's that's one really clear example um, when we look at black communities, but simultaneously you can see into present day. Um, I talk about in the book, the experience of of my communities and my family. Um, So my heritage is um, Antiguan and Jamaican. Um, And in Antigua, you know, my Antiguan family were in the Pentecostal church. Um, That was a very big thing in Antigua. Uh, In the Pentecostal church, it was very common. um, Not only, it was not only kind of tolerated to say, you know, I'm hearing the voice of God or, you know, I can see Jesus um, or, you know, speaking in tongues, things like this. It wasn't only tolerated, it was encouraged. It was a thing that some people, you know, my mom would sometimes joke about it. Some people would kind of pretend <laughs> that they were experiencing it um, because it was seen as a really a good thing, a spiritual thing. Um, and I think that's really important when we look at, for example, the disproportionate number of Black people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. You could say, you know, maybe this is something to do with racism um, and trauma. But simultaneously, I think we have to look again, it's kind of constructivist, right? Look at how, look at the diagnostic category and how it came to be. Look at kind of the symptom list and think, well, if uh, the concept of, you know, hearing voices, if we see that as a pathology, even when for some people, you know, they enjoy it or they think that it's a positive thing, um, then you are going to see. Um, specific populations disproportionately diagnosed. And, you know, I also draw uh, on the book, The Protest Psychosis, to look at this idea as well of, 
you know, schizophrenia is a diagnosis that has been stereotyped and constructed um, in line with these ideas of criminality. You know, you see words like hostile, aggressive, things like this coming up in the diagnostic criteria. And you can't separate that from the fact that black people and black men specifically who are disproportionately diagnosed um, are also stereotyped um, as hostile, criminal, criminal, aggressive. Um, And so, yeah, I really try to kind of look at how uh, when we export diagnosis across racialized populations across the globe, you're going to see um, marginalized and global majority people um, specifically pathologized um, in, in unique and disproportionate ways. I hear how you un- are also underlining that there is suffering happening. Um, suffering is its own word that maybe has different baggage and all of these things, but um, in every community. And yet um, wanting, wanting to be careful about the language that we bring in to describe that suffering and how to avoid just wholesale adopting sort of a, a very Western neoliberal side discipline approach. Um, and it has me thinking about another part of the politics of mental health have to do with like the in- interpolitics of all the different mental health fields. Um, and then, you know, outside of that, all of the different sort of ways of conceptualizing mental distress and suffering that different activist groups and different identity groups have taken on. So um, I'm wondering, you know, cause in, in the book you call for an approach that tries to end the battles over um, this is what causes mental illness is where it comes from and recognize that by accepting that um, there are lots of different ways of people coming to suffering and lots of different ways of of languaging and storing this that that connection that recognizing that sort of diversity can actually be a starting point for solidarity among groups so i'm wondering um, if you can say just more about this epistemological approach and how it could be useful in bringing together groups that identify maybe as mad, as neurodiverse, neurodivergent, psychiatric survivors, um, queer liberation, um, you know, psychosocially disabled, uh, more, and, and sort of groups that are trying to challenge this, this, uh, this hegemonic discourse. This um, was a risky argument that I made in the book because I feel like it is so contentious, you know, and part of why it's so contentious, you know, is it, is it illness or is it just society? Is madness, you know, something very different to illness? Is it just distress? Is it suffering? Um, Is it all capitalism? I think these are very personal questions. And I think you have people who, you know, people bring their lived experience also, um, whether that lived experience is being um, kind of dismissed and told that your suffering isn't real, or whether your lived experience is being non-consensually pathologized um, within psychiatric systems. And so I think it is quite controversial. I think it's one of those topics that um, gets very heated in kind of mental health and mad spaces. Um, But simultaneously, like you say, I draw on the work of Jonah Bosowicz um, from the uh, Fireweed Collective, where he talks about this idea that we need to take an epistemological approach. Um, And by this, he means that um, rather than battling one another over kind of what is the objective truth? Like, what is it? Um, Is it illness? Is it society? Is it biological? Is it social? Um, I I, I draw on his work to kind of argue that I think that this is maybe not actually uh, the question at the heart of the matter. And that actually 
maybe there are many possible realities. Um, maybe it's possible that how I make sense of my experience is different to how you make sense of your experience. But what can unite us is the fact that we both deserve to have autonomy over how we define our experiences and to not you know, non-consensually be pushed into using this language or that language, this framework or that framework. Um, and I argue that I do think this is one of the things that is so insidious about psychiatric knowledge is that like all medical knowledge, it's presented as objective, um, inherent, kind of naturalized, um, like uh, yeah, objective truth. Um, and I think that there can be many possible truths. I think that lived experience knowledge, survivor knowledge um, is, is valid um, and, and represents a form of truth. And so, yeah, like you say, I think there's something in this also of trying to um, come together, hold together in solidarity um, in what unites us. Because I think that, you know, I, I'm sure you're aware of this. Sometimes you see conflicts, for example, in kind of, you know, you've got the neurodiversity movement where there's lots of people kind of reclaiming um, or using language that originally came from psychiatry um, and shaping it in their own ways. Then you've got kind of the psychiatric survivor mad movement tradition, which is often more about rejecting this kind of terminology. And I do think, or I hope towards a future um, where we can unite the two and create a coherent politics um, that simultaneously resists psychiatric power and the dominance of psychiatric knowledge, but also allows us to kind of um, expand or be creative with language as well, kind of work out how do we want to name ourselves um, and what feels valid and what doesn't feel valid. Um, but I guess kind of the, the, the central principle to that is um, survivor agency and kind of... Uh, mad, mentally ill, neurodivergent, psychosocial disabilities, whatever terminology we use, us having agency um, over how we define ourselves. It dovetails with my own research into psychosocial disability as a construct on, under which different activist groups are uh, uniting and talking about different ways of resisting and infiltrating the mental health discourse. Uh, well, one of the results that I found pretty consistently uh, was a sort of uh, agreement not to challenge how each individual person defined how they came to be different or neurodiverse or mad in some way, uh, their own understanding of where that comes from, but recognizing that once society labeled or excluded them based upon that, um, that difference, that that's what created uh, the disability, the discrimination, the, the difference in uh, the, the inability to fully participate in life. Uh, and so despite the different sort of understandings of where that came from, there was, a, there was some ability to unite to fight against the current conditions that produce disability among people who are struggling. I wonder if you, do you see psychosocial disability as, as potentially uh, an umbrella term or as a philosophy that can, that can be uniting of these different groups? Well, firstly, yeah, I want to touch on what, what you also just talked about, because I think that that is so apt and, and links to, to the point that I was speaking to of we're so often like what causes it we need to know where it came from kind of thing and in many ways that's a very um psychiatric very medicalized very um 
kind of scientific investigator approach, right, of having to find the cause, find the blood test, find the brain scan, find the objective measure. And I'm kind of arguing similarly to what you say that I think madness or mental illness, disability, I think it operates in the social world. It's a social experience. And so to lead on to what you were saying about psychosocial disability, I think there is something in that um, that is very good at bridging um, the possibility that it could be both. It could be an interaction between the two. You could see it as being more one than the other. Um, And also, I think, you know, the use of the word disability, um, that's important to me because I have a, again, a constructivist and social model um, informed kind of approach to disability, um, which acknowledges that, again, disability is an inherent biological internal fact. Um, Disability isn't about um, something about your body or mind being uh, objectively faulty. Uh, It's about the societal conditions that we operate in, um, conditions that mean that certain people cannot participate. Um, And so I I like the use of disability there because I think it leaves space um, for this constructivist approach that I have been speaking to, which is that you know, it's not this inherent fact. It's something um, that is constructed by the material conditions that we live under. Simultaneously, I know that, you know, disability to some people um, is a difficult is difficult terminology to claim or reclaim. You know, I know for some people, for some people that's rooted in ableism, but I know for other people um, who say, you know, I'm already marginalised, Uh, in X, Y, Z way, you know, it might be as a black person, as a woman, and actually taking on one more label is going to create difficulty for me or increase stigma for me. Um, So I know there are are lots of these kinds of debates about the use of the word disability, but also, yeah, that might not chime with some people. Um, But I think in terms of terminology, it's one of the less... um, less difficult ones for me. I, I, I think that, that it's a term that I quite like for myself. I know we're running close to time. So I do, I want to get to um, thinking about how we can get outside of these words, <laughs> which uh, I find myself struggling with as we're even having this conversation, trying to find a way of, of talking about these issues without invoking mental health discourse, but it's always already there in the backdrop. Um, but you end the book with hopeful notes about this. I mean, you outline several alternatives to the status quo that could transform how we think about and respond to madness. And then going further, you really push us to, to imagine a world where we no longer would need to think within this discourse. So first, I want to ask you, like, what alternatives give you hope? What stood out to you um, in your reading and your research? And then secondly, you know, what might it look like, a world where we can think beyond and without maybe Um, psychiatric discourse that we've all inherited yeah so I'm really um keen to emphasize that I don't think there's kind of one answer or one project or one example it's like this is it like this is how we solve all of this I think that um the kind of liberated future for mental health is necessarily plural it's necessarily going to take millions of experiments lots of different, you know, hyper-local, tailored, um, specific kind of experiments that you kind of can't have one blanket approach, right? Which is what psychiatry attempts to be, is this blanket approach. Um, But a few kind of examples that uh, I really love include, you know, the Hearing Voices Network, which I mentioned, um, a network that tries to take a depathological approach to the experience of 
you know, hearing um, or seeing things that others do not. Um, and the idea that, you know, instead of um, trying to eradicate a symptom, um, usually through the use of psychiatric medication, you know, if if you don't want to take that medication or it doesn't work for you or it gives you side effects, I really like this idea of, you know, what if we engage with the content of what voices are saying? Um, what if we can find a different kind of way of orienting ourselves towards these experiences? Is there a way to befriend voices? You know, all of these questions. Um, and I really like that they don't take, um, you know, a kind of a, a um, they don't commit to being like, it's, you know, you have to reframe it as positive and good. Um, they just say, you know, there's different ways. There's, there's different ways of approaching this. Um, I really like Mad Pride, which again, I'm sure that many listeners of this podcast will also be very invested in and excited about. Um, I think that again, that represents a really liberating, depathological approach to thinking about madness and distress. Um, I think that, you know, the resurgence of Mad Pride in the UK um, with the campaign for psychiatric abolition, like you can see that they're able to also hold um, like you say, the reality of suffering and the fact that it is very real, but also that it's possible to have pride um, in madness as an identity. The two, the two can coexist. Um, and I also think, you know, crisis houses, peer support initiatives and approaches to crisis as well. I know there's like quite a few groups in the States, especially who are trying to do um, non-carceral um, crisis intervention. So, you know, not calling the police, but trying to take community, uh, um, again, tailored to the individual approaches. I think these are some of the things um, that excite me. But I also think that simultaneously, um, for me, the liberated future is also a world where far, far fewer people reach crisis point in the first place, right? Like, I talk about this quite a bit in the book, the fact that um, I think we need to uh address and move away from institutions but simultaneously like the transformation of institutions is not enough um or you know the deinstitutionalization is also not even enough on its own we also need to transform the world and the conditions that produce these institutions in the first place and create a world yeah where far fewer people suffer um and where there is resource in communities for us to care for one another before people become unwell. Thank you. Uh, I want. I guess we'll end there on this on this hopeful note and uh, leave us wondering about how uh, we can make our way towards that future uh, and support the people who are leading the way already. Uh, so I want to recommend to uh, your book to our listeners, Mad World: The Politics of Mental Health. And uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and for talking with us today. Thank you. It's been great to chat. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. For more news, views, and updates, visit maddenamerica.com.